Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, as you know, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, I am a sucker for uh, animals. And uh, I really, I don't get emotionally, I don't know, broken up over very much. But when I read a story about animal mistreatment or animal neglect, th- those are the stories that get to me each and every time. And I've always been very conflicted about the cause of medical testing, experimenting, and different things like that with animals, all sorts of animals. But then, you know, I would read this literature or that literature that the the value to humans of the medical testing that's done on animals is almost incalculable and has delivered breakthrough after breakthrough. And I said, okay, well, I don't like that they, uh, you know, cause animals discomfort or inject them with these deadly diseases. But if we could develop a a new drug for cancer or something that uh, causes humans a, a lot of problems, isn't it worth it? And I've always come down on the side of, yes, it is worth it. That is until I was exposed to the readings and the commentary of John P. Gluck. John P. Gluck is a professor emeritus for of psychology at the University of New Mexico and the author of the book, Voracious Science and Vulnerable Animals, A Primate Scientist's Ethical Journey. Uh, Mr. Gluck, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Well, thanks for the invitation, Frank. I I, uh, before we get into the depth of the important topic you're bringing up today, I just wanted to say that, uh, uh, you know, I grew up in New York, Elmhurst, listening to night radio. So I love this venue. So wonderful. uh, Who did you listen to back then? Do you remember? Uh, Symphony Sid uh, was was uh, was a pretty popular guy in my house. Uh, Symphony Sid, uh, the, the one and only. Um, all right, uh, how prevalent? Just so folks understand the the uh, the scope of the issue that we're talking about. Sure. Um, how prevalent is animal testing today? Well, I, let's we could look at uh, we could look at numbers of animals that find themselves in uh, uh, federally uh, supported uh, research in this country. And uh, uh, if you're talking about non-human primates, you're probably talking about seventy thousand. You talk in terms of mice and rats, you're probably and birds, uh, you're probably talking several million. But we don't really know those numbers because. Uh, Federal law, for some reason, uh, though it requires that we uh, calculate or or accumulate the evidence about how many dogs and cats and monkeys that we use, that that there's no such uh, requirement to uh, keep track of how many mice and rats and birds are used. 
so uh, we would you would certainly be talking about many millions of uh, mice and rats, but I we don't know really know for sure. And um, uh, you know, well, and of course, you know that's that's just talking about the United States, not talking about Europe and other other countries that. Uh, Medical research with animals is quite common. Now, I know we're going to be discussing primarily medical testing on uh, on animals, but at my house, I was at a family function over the weekend, and we were discussing, and I didn't know the complete extent of this and how prevalent this still was. There's a lot of other industries that make prolific use of animals for their testing, including cosmetics. So we're not just talking about a problem with the medical field, are we? Right. No, no, absolutely. I, you know, the uh, the Federal Drug Administration has uh, quite a few regulations that require, uh, uh, you know, tests on, you know, on, on the uh, toxicity of various agents that might go into uh, chemicals or even like cosmetics and things of that sort that uh, might contact uh, human skin or the insides of humans if they uh, consume them. So uh, uh, studies of the toxicity of those chemicals uh, for um, for many, many years has been legally required to be tested on animals and uh, which uh, requires, uh, uh, you know, feeding animals, uh, you know, most I would say mostly uh, uh, mice and rats, uh, large doses of these chemicals to see if uh, there was some sort of a, a toxic reaction. And then if we see it, it's assumed that that would be the case with humans as well. So some other ch- modification of, the, of the, uh, the, the chemicals would have to take place. We're talking with John P. Glock. He's the author of the book Voracious Science and Vulnerable Animals, A Primate Scientist's Ethical Journey. So in 2011, I know there was a lot of attention paid, and you wrote about this when you wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, to a decision by uh, authorities to prohibit medical testing on chimpanzees because they concluded that chimps were the closest human relative. So what exactly led uh, to this decision to prohibit medical testing on chimps? I imagine this was years of... Uh, working, lobbying, activism to get this done. Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, you know, chimpanzees uh, found themselves in in uh, government labs and university labs, uh, certainly throughout the 19th, at least beginning in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, but the, uh, the space race uh, brought a great many chimpanzees uh, from Africa into uh, laboratories in the United States and some of them, uh, some of the biggest laboratories right here in New Mexico, uh, where the uh, national, uh, you know, NASA was uh, testing animals for for the uh, trying to get evidence about whether it would be safe to send humans into space. And uh, and uh, you might recall that they actually did uh, send two chimpanzees into orbit into orbit and then uh, recollected them when they came down. But I think this was a, this was a time when uh, I think we started seeing the importation of chimpanzees for this kind of research uh, starting to happen. Now, um, I would also say or point out 
1986, the National Institutes of Health made a decision to start breeding uh, chimpanzees here in this country uh, so that the, uh, the quantity and availability of chimpanzees would be vastly increased. Mm. And, and, and one of the reasons for that was the um, assumption, belief, uh, prediction, let's say, that uh, chimpanzees, as you pointed out, uh, certainly the, the closest ape uh, to, to humans in terms of their DNA and, and physiological functions, would make excellent uh, research subjects to study uh, HIV. And uh, <clears throat> so the, uh, uh, so the uh, National Institutes of Health began this uh, breeding program which produced uh, uh, a great many chimpanzees, and the, uh, the the fallout of that was was that after all of that planning, all of the breeding, it turned out the chimpanzees were not a good model to study hmm. HIV. Yeah. What what they found when they uh, uh, transmitted that virus to uh, uh, chimpanzees was that the virus would replicate in the body of the chimp, but they didn't get AIDS. The, uh, they didn't show any indication of having had the disease or, or getting the disease of, of AIDS. So it was like this uh, terrible mistake. Were chimps, have... were chimps helpful in terms of research for other diseases or other conditions? Oh, yeah. Uh, certainly, I think uh, hepatitis B was one... Uh, uh, probably you, you would certainly have to indicate would be one of the uh, research successes in terms of using uh, chimpanzees, the development of treatments for uh, hepatitis B and so on, and, and some related conditions. Um, but uh, again, you know, that we had all these chimpanzees, and uh, because the assumption was early, well, when we started breeding them for the purpose of studying HIV in them, that they, a lot of them would die from the disease. And so, uh, but that didn't happen. So the numbers of chimpanzees just kept on increasing and increasing and increasing. And there were these uh, NASA chimps from the space program, and uh, they were uh, lounging around in laboratories throughout the country. And um, then there was a move by a couple of uh, 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 federal grant people to start studying these same chimps again. And there was this uh, concern that, is that even fair? They've gone through a lot of, uh, a lot of testing. They've uh, given their best uh, to now, participate. Oh, the uh, space to, chimps or the HIV chimps or both? Both. Both. You know, it was the sense that, you know, they've all, they, they'd all contributed quite significantly to uh, human betterment, the development of the space program, and so on, that maybe it was... Uh, yeah, they've earned their the, right to not have yeah. uh, not be poked and prodded. Exactly. That was the... And so there are a number of people, uh, again, here in New Mexico, where some, where some of them, uh, senators, that uh, wrote to uh, Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, and uh, objected. And uh, what happened was... Uh, that um, what Francis Collins did at NIH was he's well, I'll, I'll form a committee and we'll get people together, scientists together and so on, 
and asked them to make a determination about whether chimpanzees were necessary uh, to, to, to study various biomedical conditions. And so in uh, 2010, that committee was formed. And as I recall, it was, there were about 10 to 14 people on that committee, most of them researchers. And, and there was one uh, card-carrying ethicist from Johns Hopkins University uh, to help in the uh, discussion. The other thing that I think is very important to bring up here, Frank, is that when that committee was given its directive from the from the National Institutes of Health, they were said they were told, "You are not to consider the ethical issues in using chips. You're only allowed to tell us about their medical usage mm. and whether it's necessary, but don't talk to us." about the ethics of it now and the other thing was they said write us a letter don't write a report write us a letter the committee refused they uh, the committee refused and said look you can't have a discussion about animals and research that are exposed to harm uh, with yes you have to talk about the physiology and the biochemistry and and so on and so forth of the animals and whether it be useful in these various diseases. But you can't leave ethical considerations out, like about the harms and the, the extent to which they would suffer and so on and so forth. It's just improper to leave that dimension out. And so the committee uh, won their argument. And so they, they produced not a letter, but a, an extensive report that looked at the kinds of conditions that chimps had been used and that were being planned to be used in medical research and whether or not they were necessary. And what, uh, what the committee concluded was that, uh, by and large, chimpanzees were not necessary to study the various diseases that uh, researchers had planned. They, there were a couple they weren't sure about, but, but uh, to say 90%, 95% of all the other conditions that they considered, they, they concluded that you didn't, ha didn't need to use chimpanzees to uh, further that research. So since then, since that 2011 ban on yeah. using chimps for medical research, from I, I know you may not be an, ex an objective source on this question, but I'll ask it to you anyway because you're the most qualified person in this conversation. Has the cause of medical research been hindered at all without using chimpanzees to experiment on? Well, I, I, that's a super good question uh, because the question is to what extent uh, are there um, – I, I think let, – let me put it this way – since just historically, since the 19th century, uh, researchers, physiologists, people studying diseases and so on, uh, started, always started their studies by first looking at what happens in animals that get this disease. So, you know, the um, um, uh, Claude Bernard, who was a famous physiologist in France, was one of the proponents that the way to start studying diseases, you first you create an animal model, and then you learn as much as you can from the animal model, 
and then you go on to humans. So this is, and, and frankly, of course, that, that approach had been quite successful in the 19th and in the, uh, in the uh, 20th century. Successful in, in terms of finding important uh, cures for various diseases. But people also began to ask the question, is the cost of doing this work on, on animals uh, ethically appropriate? That is, are the benefits that come out of those animal studies uh, acknowledging that many of them produced a great deal of pain and distress in those animals? Was that trade-off worth it? Or were there other ways, alternatives to uh, uh, studying these, to the various diseases of concern without using animals? Was there a way to do that? And so... Um, Jumping ahead now, uh, starting in the like in the 1950s, uh, a couple of very important researchers in Britain wrote a book uh, about uh, humane animal treatment in laboratories. And what they said was there were three um, principles that should be followed when using animals in biomedical research. One you should use as few animals as is necessary to get a, a scientifically valid finding. Two, you, have, you should reduce the amount of stress that the animals experience in these studies to the, to the smallest amount necessary. And third, that, we, that the researchers should always be looking for replacements. Is there a way to do this? without the animal. Mr. Gluck, I, I could keep you on all night, but there's two questions I want to ask you before we run out of time. One, sure. just so folks understand your perspective, can you explain what you used to do with respect to animal research and animal testing and why you changed your, your tune on that? And two, it, now, even though chimps are banned, I'm wondering if you can explain how prevalent the use of experimenting on other primates that are not chimpanzees is today? Yeah. Uh, well, yes. Uh, well, let me t- let me tell you just uh, you know a little bit about uh, the, uh, the the research world that I was in, and 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 uh, eventually found that I I couldn't stay in. I was trained as a, a primatologist, uh, a biomedical primatologist. Uh, um, I'm a psychologist by training. And uh, I was involved in work in the um, in the 1950s and 60s on um, uh, uh, nature versus nurture, if I may. That is looking at what are the most important dimensions that lead to adequate development in a in a living being. And so we were doing studies uh, uh, in laboratories, and I was involved in those studies. Uh, looking at what was the most important factors that led to proper development was it was it all built in in terms of genes and and uh, the way the body came into this world, or was the experiences that uh, beings had uh, were they was that significant in modifying and creating the developmental process that we see uh, as an individual matures now this may seem like 
are, are we, were we really having this question? But it was it really was a very powerful question in the 1950s and 60s and even into the 1970s. So I was involved in doing research uh, initially as a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, um, uh, looking at what happens when you take uh, non-human primates, and we were using uh, rhesus monkeys. These are monkeys that came from Asia. Um, and we were, we were manipulating what their life experiences were, whether they had a lot of stimulation, uh, enrichment, lots of experiences, and then we compared them to animals where those kinds of experiences were limited, and, or one might even say isolated from social experience. And we were comparing the uh, outcomes, the behavioral outcomes as a consequence of that. And um, uh, it's probably no surprise to you or to your audience that when you take a complex animal like a rhesus monkey and you deprive it from uh, having a um, sensory experience and experience with other, other beings of its species where it can learn how to carry on its life, uh, to be a parent uh, and have a place in a group, uh, that when you restrict those kinds of experiences, the animals are horribly distorted when they come out of that experience. Oh, I, I can imagine. Uh, Mr. Gluck, we actually have to uh, end it there, but I, I do encourage people to check out your book and uh, to, uh, you know, pay attention to the work that you're that you're doing. I, I think it's so important. Again, the book is called Voracious Science and Vulnerable Animals, a, a primate scientist ethical right. journey. Thank you very much, sir. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.